Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 22nd, 2014. For my program notes. Oh, here they are. <laughs> I, I'm losing my mind. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop, open up our Bibles to see if, well... What people are saying actually squares with what Scripture says. Now, um, one of the things we constantly, we're kind of beating the drum here at Fighting for the Faith, is this idea that the Bible isn't about you. No, it's about Jesus. It's one of the things we continually harp on, and we make the claim that as long as you think that the Bible contains some kind of hidden roadmap, uh, and what I mean by that is this, is that you know, over and again, I, I see there's this epidemic of narcissistic reading of scripture. So the idea is this, is, you know, you approach the scripture from the idea of, okay, I'm trying to figure out what's God up to in my life. You know, here I've been told I have, you know, that I have to have some big audacious dream and that I'm made for greater than what I'm doing. And, you know, here I am, you know, working at, at Taco Bell, you know, and, you know, I'm making burritos and tacos every night and scrubbing toilets. And, and I, you know, what's God up to? He's got to be up to something. I mean, because I, the, the, I had this vision that I'm supposed to be uh, the president of the world, you know, and I'm supposed to change the world. How am I supposed to change the world if I'm, you know, making burritos and tacos and cleaning toilets at Taco Bell? So this is kind of... The general assumption how you approach scripture, because I, I, this is a theory I have on my part as far as the psychology that goes along with this. You know, I have I've got kids. Yeah. Yeah. The pirate Christians got kids. I've, I've got three of them. And uh, my youngest is 17. Oldest is uh, what? He's 24 now. Ugh. Anyway. Um, and so, you know, you kind of got the range. And one of the things I've noticed is that um, when you spend any time with, you know, teenagers, you know, young adults, is they play these video games that, uh, you know, that 
they're very immersive that you play the hero you conquer worlds and destroy mega villains and it's a it's a big deal you know and so you know you've just spent the last 2 weeks you know working to conquer this this medieval land and and the forces of evil and darkness that have risen against it and, and then you know you you feel like oh you're the the, the most important person out there you kind of vicariously live through these super uber uh video game heroes right and then then you know you turn off the computer and your parents say get out there and get a job you know we're tired of you sitting on the couch you know or in your room playing video games all the time and so okay all right so you go and you get a job and you find out that, you know, as a young person, you know, teenager and things like that, that, you know, finding a job as a CEO, <laughs> really difficult when you're you know, like 18. Uh, this uh, this is what I've noticed is there seems to be some kind of an age ceiling, you know, <laughs> it, it's as if the whole corporate world is is designed to discriminate against brilliant talent, uh, talent in the 18 to <laughs> you 30 something range of people out there and so you have to get a job at the bottom and you have to work your way up the, to the top and the problem is those dro- jobs at the bottom they really are yeah not that great you know what i'm saying you might have to work in the mail room you ha- might have to you know <laughs> work in a cubicle maze of, of all things and you know and, and then you might have like you know crazy boss or something like that and so you know you're and you go to these purpose-driven, seeker-driven churches, and they're all about you know telling you over and again, Christianity is about you discovering your unique purpose. You've got to be a game changer in the world. You're going, and you're the generation that's going to do this amazing thing. You know, and so they fill their heads. It kind of goes uh, reinforced with their experience with the video games. They go and they get us. And so what happens? So they go, well, you know. What I'm being told Christianity is all about and this great big purpose and, and dream destiny that I'm supposed to have for my life, it just doesn't seem to be coming. And, you, you know, I, I can't even afford to pay for my, you know, for my, uh, you know, my car payments on, you know, on, on my nine year old Hyundai. I mean, and you know, this is terrible, you know, and, and so you, what am I, what do, what do we do? And, and so the pastor comes along and says, well, you know, what you do in a situation like this is you look at like the story of like King David or Elisha, you know, he was in a similar situation. He was on his way to his destiny. And so what happens is you read the Bible as if what it contains is like a roadmap, a roadmap of different patterns that different people in, you know, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, how they went from being zeros to heroes, from being you know, kind of confused about what they're doing in their life to changing the world and, and God giving them their unique destiny. And so what you do is you try to glean information from the patterns in their lives to kind of fit with the pattern that's going on in your life. And when you do that, when you do that, you read yourself into the text. I mean, it doesn't matter about one whit what those texts actually mean. The only thing that matters is what does it mean to me in the circumstance I find myself in as I'm on my way to discover my destiny so that I can change the world. You see, and so the, all of the premises that you approach Scripture from, you know, with this mentality, this, this theology, they're off. And it doesn't work. And if you were to just stop doing that, okay, 
and turn off all of your premises, knock it off and think for a second and read the texts and ask yourself the question, what does this really mean? Why are these stories, these historical accounts found in the Bible? It's not, and when I tell you, it's not so that you can find some patterns that you can follow, some principles that you can follow on the way to your destiny and greatness, because if you read the Bible as it reads, you're going to find out you're part of the problem. You are one of those people just like me, born dead in trespasses and sins in need of a savior. The one who lived his dream destiny was the one who was prophesied all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God and broke the covenant that they had with him. Mm -hmm. And so the one who had the dream destiny, the one who had the purpose that he perfectly fulfilled, and he did it for you, and he's the one who's changed the world, not you. He's the one who changed the world. That's Jesus. Okay, when you understand it's about him, then the Bible begins to start to make sense. But as long as you think it is about you, that it's about, you know, some pattern that you can follow. And see, what happens is when you read the Bible as if all is showing is patterns that you can look for so that you can figure out what's going on in your life and uh, on your way to your destiny then what happens is is that Jesus is no longer really savior instead he's kind of like the um well how do i put it the ultimate example of the guy who really got to his purpose and fulfilled it and so you you got to follow his pattern and you got to be like Jesus and now Jesus rather than being savior he is destiny coach yeah and as long as you read the bible like this you are totally totally in the dark totally missing the point you are diligently searching the scriptures the way jesus uh, told the jews you diligently search the scriptures you can find this in john chapter 5 because you think that in them you have life yet they are the very scriptures that testify about me jesus says jesus said moses wrote about me and you refuse to come to me that you might have life so this whole idea that the Bible is written with all of these stories to kind of show you patterns and principles on your, you know, that you can apply to your your life on your way to your purpose and your destiny. It's, it's hogwash. That that is not true. <laughs> so as a result of that, the 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 assumptions that people are approaching Scripture from are literally keeping them from seeing what the Scriptures are all about. And these pastors who are filling these people's heads with this nonsense about finding your destiny dream purpose, well, you know, the only thing they can do is narcissistically eisegete these passages. And when they do that, they miss the whole point entirely. So this is, you know, one of the recurring themes that we talk about here at Fighting for the Faith. And this episode of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to, most of the uh, segments will be addressing that. We kind of have an outlier today. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin with a um, a Faith Church St. Louis, that's right, David Crank update. And uh, just let me ask you the question. Um, what do you think the point of the story of the flood is in the book of Genesis? Can you just think about it? What's and you're going? Well, um, well, it's something about Jesus, right? <laughs> Trust me when I tell you that's what it's really about. Well, David Crank thinks it's about learning how to deal with the floods that come into your life. 
<laughs> I heard you groaning out there. I heard you groaning. That is, I, I, yeah, I understand. It's that's not what the st- story of the flood is about. But again, when you think the Bible's about you finding patterns and principles that you can apply to yourself on your way to your dream destiny, well, you're going to miss the point every time. And David Crank does. Then we'll take a break. We'll switch gears. We've got a. Um, Keith Craft update from Elevate Life Church, and what's funny is is that his current uh, sermon series, Game Changers, um, <laughs> he flat out he rejects in the sermon. He rejects this idea that the Bible's about Jesus. Instead, he tries to defend that it's about you. No joke, he does that. And then uh, to round out the hour, that we've got well. We, an announcement of sorts. Uh, you, those of you who listen to Fighting for the Faith know that uh, we, we oftentimes have Heath Mooneyhan updates here at Fighting for the Faith. We recently reviewed a sermon by Heath Mooneyhan of Ignite Church in Joplin, Missouri. And, well, it's going to be at least a year, maybe longer, before we have another um, sermon review or a Heath Mooneyhan update. And the reason being is that this past week, Heath Mooneyhan was uh, arrested for a DUI. And uh, and so we're going to play the audio from Heath Mooneyhan's apology that he issued uh, this past Sunday at Ignite Church. And note some of the things that were said, some of the things that, what they were kind of reveal regarding Heath Mooneyhan. And Heath Mooneyhan is like, he's kind of in the same category as Mark Driscoll, although he's not reformed. Um, and many would argue, well, neither is Driscoll. Yes, I understand your point there. Uh, but I, what I mean by that is Heath Mooneyhan does not self-identify as reformed. Does that make sense? And I don't think he could begin to tell you anything regarding the doctrines of grace. I mean, if his life depended on it, he wouldn't even be able to give you one of the five letters in TULIP and tell you what it means. So... Um, but anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there. But what I mean by the, the fact that Heath Mooneyhan is like Driscoll is that Heath Mooneyhan is, well, he's like Driscoll. He's like Gary Lamb. In a sense, he's kind of like Perry Noble. In a sense, he's kind of like Stephen Furtick. And what I mean by that is, is that, well, he's another one of these guys who's trying to build a church based upon the bad boy pastor image. You know, the guy who sticks it to the the church man, you know. That guy. Um, so yeah, but um, but so many so many times we're seeing that uh, if your church is built off the bad boy image, yeah, there's something wrong there because you don't actually qualify. You don't biblically qualify for the office of the pastoral ministry, and as a result of that, these guys they uh, inevitably do something that disqualifies them from uh, being pastors. And so Heath Mooneyhan has. Uh, by being arrested for a DUI, he's um, uh, now under discipline. And so, I mean, there's something positive there. At least they have a, a, an elder board of sorts that is capable of disciplining him. And we, you know, I would say that because of what's happened, we should be praying for Heath Mooneyhan, praying for his repentance, praying for his Alcoholics Anonymous recovery, you know, and, and things like that. But um, my, on top of it, my prayer would be that he does not return to the pastoral ministry uh, for the very reason that he is not qualified. And what I mean by that is um, he's not qualified due to the fact that the biblical requirements of a pastor not only talk about how you live your life, but also about your doctrine. And we've demonstrated here at Fighting for the Faith that Heath Mooneyhan is not capable of 
of rightly handling God's word. And as a result of that, he's dis- he was disqualified from being a pastor long before he was arrested for his DUI. That's kind of the things we point out here. Okay, so, um, and then in hour number two, yeah, we've we got a sermon review. We're going to be going to LifePoint Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Listen to Daniel Floyd. Uh, it, the sermon is entitled Dark Horse Stacked for Success, kind of a quintessential example of approaching the Bible with this false, and I mean this false understanding that it's about finding patterns and principles to apply to your life so that you can learn how to go to the next level on your way to your dream destiny to change the world. So that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And since we're starting with a David Crank update, that requires us to do this. I can't hit a falsetto. Alright, there we go. Dreamweaver by Gary Wright. That's our uh, David Crank update music. Now, like I said at the beginning of the program, we're going to be listening to David Crank trying to explain to us how the story of the flood somehow is about dealing with the floods that come into your life. So we're going to go from having a real historical flood. Oh yeah. And by the way, the, the flood, totally a historical event. You go, well, how do you know, Chris? Cause Jesus said so. And he died and rose again from the grave. Listen, if you're a theologian, as soon as you can raise yourself from the grave on the third day, and you then have the authority to come back and talk in a way that you could potentially challenge Jesus. But until you die and rise again, three days after you've been uh, killed or die, uh, you know, if your theological opinions differ with Jesus, well, your theological opinions ain't worth a hill of beans. I'm going with the Jesus guy. Yeah, God in human flesh. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, he, but we're going to go from a historical event in the book of Genesis to uh, all things an allegorical flood in your life. Here's David Crank to explain all the intricacies of how to wrongly read yourself into the story of the flood in the book of Genesis. Here we go. Tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about the flood. Noah and the flood. Anybody ever heard about that? The big flood that happened and destroyed everything in the world? Have you ever felt like you were in a flood and you thought, my God, is this ever going to change? Is there... See, I mean, we're 15 seconds into this sermon. 15 seconds. And no sooner does he mention the biblical, historical, worldwide flood, where now he allegorizes it to, you know, you got a flood in your life. And he's not talking about if you're living near the Red River in uh, North Dakota. He's talking about, you know, allegorical floods. You know, things aren't going so well in your marriage. Maybe your job isn't all that great. You know, things like that life out out there there's a scripture in the bible that says i've been through the fire and i've been through the flood now i have entered my wealthy place let's all now if you're not familiar with this text the, the verse he's taking out of context and i had to do a little hunting today to find this it's uh, psalm 66 verse 12 we're going to use our three rules for sound biblical exegesis And uh, we'll take a look at what's going on here. So we're going to start at verse 1, Psalm 66, verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. 
All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did, uh, there did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Or you can say flood. That's a, that's a legit way of, of uh, translating uh, the waters here. Yet you have brought us to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. Now, keep this in mind. Just because you quote Psalm 66, verse 12, out of context does not mean that this verse is in some way giving us a proper way of understanding how to exegete the story of the flood. So this is kind of a common technique that these guys use, is that you just rip a verse out of context, throw it into the middle of something that you're talking about, and supposedly this has something to do with the uh, the flood of Noah. Well, that, see, that's the thing, is that this is not commenting on the flood of Noah and just in reading the context there, you know, the Psalms being poetry, well, there's a sense in which, you know, some of the things mentioned in Psalm 66 are poetic. Mm-hmm. So we've got a problem here. He's, he's playing fast and loose with the scriptures. And we're only 26 seconds into the sermon. Together, I've been through the fire. I've been through the flood. But now I'm entering my wealthy place. Look at your neighbor and say, get ready for this. This is about to get good. Yeah, get ready for this. This is about to get really twisted. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock which were on the ark. He sent a great wind upon the earth and the waters receded. So you're going you're gonna to tell us the flood story starting at chapter 8? You're going to skip like chapter 6 and chapter 7? You know, where God tells Noah the flood's coming and then the flood comes? You know, you're just going to start at the end of the story? Hmm. It makes me feel like you're not really interested in telling us what the story's about. Now the springs of the, of the deep and the floodgates of heaven, they all begin to, to recede. And the ark came, verse 4, the ark came to rest upon the mountain. I would like to say the high place. The waters continued to recede into the 10th month of the first day of the 10th month and the tops of the mountain became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window. I want you to shout, open the window. Noah opened the window and he allowed the raven out. And the raven kept flying back and forth until the earth was dried up. And then he opened the window and he let the dove out. Now tonight, I really, if I had a title for this sermon, I guess it would probably be Chase the Dove, Not the Raven. Chase the Dove, Not the Raven. Just in reading Genesis 8, Noah wasn't chasing any doves or ravens. He's been with his family locked up in the ark for about a year, okay? The whole world 
was destroyed in judgment. And the, the flood is a type and shadow of the coming judgment of God upon the earth when Jesus returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. Okay, this is real simple. If you kind of want to understand typologically what's going on here, Jesus is the ark. If you're in Jesus, you will be saved when God's flood of judgment comes. And if you're going to do this allegorically, you're going to need to keep Jesus as the center of it. That's a good way to read this text. And I mean, even the church fathers noted the fact that, you know, just like, you know, the ark had a you know, had a had a, a gash in its side where the door was, right? So Jesus was you know, was pierced through the side, and so we're in Jesus. It's funny when you look at the scripture; it talks about those who are baptized. We've been baptized into Christ. We are in Christ. Who's the Ark? Then Jesus is the Ark. Okay. So if you want to understand how to typologically see how the flood points us to Jesus and points us to the thing that we actually find ourselves in, that's the way to do it. But this, what he's doing here is ridiculous. I mean, okay, so Noah had a raven, he threw raven out. So, okay, the, don't be throwing no ravens out in your life. You got to throw the doves out. You got to, don't pursue the raven, pursue the dove. It doesn't make any sense at all when you read the story of Noah uh, for you to be thinking like this. And I, I like, the, I don't know if they got the video. I, I asked them to, I, I sent it from my phone. I don't know if you guys have it or not, but there's a video. There, this is a dove, a real live shot from my iPhone. That's a real live dove outside our window. And in the spring of 2014, God told us to read the book of Acts on our knees. And the Holy Spirit told you to do what? <laughs> you sure that was the Holy Spirit? Uh, God, the Holy Spirit said, yeah, David, this is the Holy Spirit, and, um, you know, I, I would really like it if you and Nicole could, you know, like, I, I want you to read the whole book of Acts, but, I, you know, I, I really need you to read the whole thing on your knees. What is that? Every day when Nicole would get down on her knees, or I would get down on my knees in our bedroom, this dove would fly to the window and sit there for the entire time that we would read the Bible. Now, I don't know if that seems weird to you, but it was kind of freaky-deaky for us. We're like, say, what? Yeah, the dove isn't the freaky-deaky part. The freaky-deaky part is the part where you're saying that God and the Holy Spirit told you to read the book of Acts on your knees. One, I'm like, is that a dove? She's like, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm saved, but, I mean, I still know the song that Prince wrote, When Doves Cry. I mean, I'm not that saved. Why would this be and how could this happen? And I'll set it in context to let you know that the Holy Spirit all through the Bible is a type of the dove. <laughs> no, the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures is represented as a dove. Okay. Even in the, in Genesis, okay, it talks about the Spirit of God brooding over the waters, right? You know, over the tohu abohu. That's the Hebrew here. And, uh, and and so, yeah, and then when Jesus is baptized, who shows up, the dove dispen, uh, descends as a, uh, uh, the, the spirit descends as a dove, and then the voice of the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, slow down, let the brain catch up to the tongue here. Anyway, you get the point here. Yeah, we continue. When, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, the dove came from heaven, and he said, you heard this audible sound as the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and it says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Isn't it cool that God knew that Jesus needed a father to affirm him? And that 
<laughs> God knew that Jesus needed a father to affirm him. Really? Now affirms you and I. I I'll tell you, there's a real significance in the death. And now God affirms you and I. Oh, man. Talk about missing the point. Yeah, so God's up there in heaven descending, you know, at your baptism and saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to me. You know, listen. I want people to listen to you. Yeah, no. <sighs> Not the raven. So, so to put it in context, just a little bit, we, we, we bought that house a few months before that. And we looked at a particular house, and I felt good about it. And I, you know, I mean, it's cool. We can, I don't care where we live. As long as we got a bedroom and a sink and a place to eat, I'm good. How about you? Uh, but Nicole, I, I showed her this house a couple of times, and she's like, no, nah, I don't feel good about it. And, but she's going to be agreeable. So she walks into the house that we're thinking about buying, and, and she starts crying. I hate that when a woman starts crying. I mean, no, it ain't good. And so we went back a week later. She said, I'm, I'm going to try to like this house. And so she went back and she's crying again. I'm like, man, this is not working. But right before we go to sign on this property, you know, earlier, a few months back, all of a sudden this next house, the one right here where the dove shows up, it became available out of nowhere. Sometimes when you open the window the first time and you send out the first bird and nothing happens, What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Sometimes when you open out, open up a window and send the first bird. <laughs> I haven't sent any birds out of my window. I <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, this, this is absurd. And this is all because you're reading the Bible thinking it's about you. It's not doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. It just means that the time is not right right now. And if you read the whole story of Noah, you see when he sends the black bird out, the bird just flies back and forth, back and forth, wearing itself out in the flesh, never came back to the ark. I mean, no, that's a dumb bird right there. When he opened the windows and he let the dove out, the dove came right back and he's like, hey, Willis, it's still wet out there. Nothing out there. You, you want to be sure that you're following the dove not the raven, the flesh, doing what you want to do. So the raven represents the flesh. I mean, who knew? I mean, whatever you do, don't follow those ravens in your life. You want to do it the way you want to do it. You always have to make sure this stuff that I'm speaking of, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the advocate, the standby, who's living on the inside of you. That be led forth with peace. Follow your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. The Holy Spirit wants you to be at the right place. Where, where does the Bible say follow your heart? You just stuck that into the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Uh, to get the right information to live a holistic life. So, uh, a holistic life. We're supposed to live holistic lives. Again, how, how are you getting this from Scripture? This property comes for sale, right? So Nicole feels good about this. So do you think the story of the flood is about David Crank's purchase of this property? No, not at all. I don't care where we live. That's fine. Boom, we buy the house. When we're doing some of the inspections, it was kind of weird. This, this inspector walks in and he's up at the top and uh, up in the bedroom and he looks out that same window where the dove had been. And, and, and we're living there now and the dove had been coming every day. And he's looking out the window and I said, that's a beautiful view, isn't it? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, I know a lot about this property. I said, you yeah. 
He said, you know, this, this was an ancient burial ground for Indians. And they kept the chief Indian right here within 100 feet of where you are. And then the Indians actually sold it to the, the Catholic Church and the paraclete of brotherhood. They built all those buildings that you see, those beautiful structures behind you. That's where they live. And I said, wait a minute, the paraclete of brotherhood. Now, the paraclete's not going to mean much to anybody in here, but my dad was a preacher, and he would always talk about the Holy Spirit is your paraclete. So when I heard paraclete, I thought, this is weird that that dove is here, and paraclete of brotherhood. So I Googled it. It says paraclete of brotherhood. And there's a dove with his wings expanded like this dove was many times, and I'm like, what? Nicole! I didn't care about the inspector anymore. Have you considered putting this on like a, 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 a an upcoming episode of like in search of the paranormal? This is absurd, and this has absolutely nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with the story of the flood. The story of the flood is not about David Crank buying a property, you know, from the Brotherhood of the Paraclete. <laughs> I mean, and again, as long as you think the Bible's about you. You have no idea what the Bible is about. You're going to miss the whole point. It's really about Jesus. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a Keith Kraft update as well as an update on uh, Heath Mooneyhan and his arrest for uh, DUI. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissiopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my 
good for nothing ex boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to discover that the Bible's not about you, that it's about Jesus. And as soon as you discover that, you're well on your way to understanding your Bible. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code uh, 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here Without it. Okay, moving along, we have a, a Keith Craft update that requires us to do this. These are the sounds of the Mariachi Trench. The Mariachi Trench is the deepest place on planet Earth. Made famous, of course, by Keith Craft of Elevate Life Church at the Cathedral of Frisco in Frisco, Texas. That's some pretty good mariachi trench music, don't you think? Okay, so what we're going to be listening to is Keith Craft from a recent sermon entitled How to Be a Game Changer. How to Be a Game Changer. And in this message, he eschews, basically contradicts this idea that, you know, listen, the Bible's all about Jesus. No, 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 no. It's all about you got to be in a game changer and his, well... Logic as to why that is, is uh, dubious at best. Here's Keith Kraft to explain. 
At one time or another, all of us have experienced something that's changed the landscape, a game changer. Game changers are people that change everything that comes after them. Game changers have a magic that in an instant can take ordinary into extraordinary. Game changers are right people who come along in the right place at the right time and have the ability to make right things happen. They're not just dreamers. Game changers are doers. They are people who live with a purpose. Uh-huh. So you got to be a game changer. You need to live, you know, with a purpose. Game changers challenge the, st- challenge the status quo. And they constantly ask this question. Is there a better way? Question. Where in the Bible does God say he, it is his will that all of us as Christians be game changers. Because, you know, I think about those poor guys who lived back in the day when slavery was around. You know, you know, there were slaves who became Christians during the time of Paul. You think of, you know, Philemon. And uh, anyway, the, the point is, is that the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't say to those who are owned by somebody else during the time of the Roman Empire, oh, and you need to have a big dream and purpose for your life so that you can become a game changer. You know what he says? Slaves, obey your masters. That doesn't sound like um, uh, some kind of a rule to be a game changer to me. I mean, am I missing something? Most importantly, a game changer truly understands that there is a greater purpose beyond themselves. They live life knowing God's destiny for them is not just to change the game, but to change the world forever. Not just to change the game, but to change the world forever. Didn't Jesus already do that for us? Wherein are we as Christians commanded to be game changers? People need to change for the better. Marriages need to change for the better. Businesses need to change for the better. The world needs to change for the better. You see, here's what we believe. If you can change yourself... You can change the game. And if you can change the game. If you can change yourself, you can change the game. Where are we told that in the Bible? You can change the world. Game changers. I'm so excited because I'm in a room full of game changers. Game changers. People that have the power to change the game. You might say, I don't feel like that today. In fact, my game's not going very well. Your game might be your marriage. Your game might be your business. Your game might be your family. Your game might be your finances, but you're here and you just say, I don't feel like a game changer. Can I just give you some courage and some hope today to tell you that God's your father, you're his son, you're his daughter, and the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. Can I just say, well, yeah, that's true. But just because of that, that doesn't mean that we are commanded by God to be game changers. Yeah, that doesn't logically follow you that you have a fingerprint that nobody else has because God's put you on the earth to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. You're a game changer. There was a very dark time in the history of not just the church, but in the history of the world. In fact, it was one of the most dark times that's ever been recorded in the history of the world. And it's found right here in the Bible, but it's almost a secret. When we look at Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter, 
the ninth verse, we see a prophecy that the prophet Jeremiah makes that there's a lot of things that are going to have to happen right for this prophecy to come to pass. But let's read what the prophecy says. The Bible says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king who shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah is talking about Jesus Christ. The Lord, our righteousness. Yeah, Jesus is our righteousness. Prophecy of Jeremiah couldn't be truer, right? And Keith Craft has correctly identified that this is a prophecy regarding Jesus. And so what's the prophecy about then, really? He's talking about Jesus who would be born in the tribe of Judah, in the lineage of David. Yes. And if you fast forward to Matthew, the first chapter, we see the genealogy or the lineage of Jesus. Right. That's correct. Because the Bible's about Jesus. And when you read that genealogy in Matthew chapter one, it reads like a who's who of all of the Old Testament Bible stories. The reason for that is what the uh, church fathers called the scarlet thread. The reason why we're, you know, the the re, the stories in the Bible are there, and we're following this particular family, is because that's the family that Jesus, the promised Messiah, comes through. Right. The significance of genealogy, especially in ancient days, were that they would do genealogies to prove somebody's royalty. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, the genealogies were done to keep track of royal bloodlines. This is true. But how many people were considered royals of the ancient world? Not many. You know, have you ever seen in Matthew there, it just lists name after name after name after name? In fact, it was 14 generations and then another 14 generations and then another 14 generations. Let's put that in perspective for those of you that are good at math or not good at math, that's 42 generations. In 42 generations, there had to be individuals in that generation that had to be game changers so that this prophecy could come true. How how do you figure? Um, Because when you read the genealogy of Jesus... Yeah, there's some people that, you know, kind of high watermark. You've got Abraham, the man of faith. You've got King David. But then you got, you know, Manasseh and, you know, you got some riffraff in there. Then you got Tamar and Rahab and, you know, and <laughs> you got Solomon and Bathsheba. There's some, yeah, ups and downs. See, the thing is, is that does God need a human being to be a game changer in order to fulfill a prophecy? Not exactly, because when you look through the genealogy of Jesus, it is, you know, it is a good representative sample of, uh, of humanity. And what I mean by that is you find people who are idolaters as well as those who are of faith, people who are adulterers and murderers, and those who were upstanding and feared the Lord. And as a result of their fear and trust in God, their lives were such that they sought to please God by doing God's will and not, uh, not breaking his law. But each and every one of the people in Jesus' genealogy is a sinner. So you see what uh, Keith Craft is doing here? He's trying to stick into 
this, the genealogy of Jesus, this theology that he's invented regarding game changers. But if God wanted us to be game changers, wouldn't he just simply say so in his word? You know, I, I will that thou beest a game changer, thus saith the Lord, but he doesn't do that. So this is based upon Keith Craft reading himself into the biblical text, reading you and I into the biblical text, and trying to deduce, oh, see these people, there had to be some game changers in there, so the Bible can't just be about Jesus. You see, I've always heard my whole life it's all about Jesus. Hear my heart today. Hear God's heart. It's not just all about Jesus. That's right. You heard him say that correctly. He just said it's not just all about Jesus. Wow, that's worth hearing again. Let's play that again. You see, I've always heard my whole life it's all about Jesus. Hear my heart today. Hear God's heart. It's not just all about Jesus. Yeah, that was worse the second time. We continue. It's about a lot of people in 42 generations that made a lot of right choices while a lot more people were making bad choices. There were game changers in every generation to make sure that the prophecy that had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah would come to pass. Wrong. Yeah, listen, the prophecy goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden long before Jeremiah. By the time Jeremiah shows up on the scene, King David is long dead. So is Solomon. Yeah, no, I mean, this is just patently absurd, absolutely absurd. And it's not like these people were sitting there going, well, uh, we've got to make the prophecy of Jeremiah come true, so I better be a game changer. It's just flat, flat out false. It's narcissistically false. 42 generations later. And by the way, this isn't even about Jesus. This is really all about you being a game changer. Why should you be a game changer? Well, because, you know, there was a lot of game changers in Jesus' genealogy. Jesus was born of a virgin. Oh, Mary was a game changer. But what if there had been no virgins? You ever thought about that? Somebody had to be enough. Have have we run out of virgins? I mean, are those tough to find, especially back in the days of ancient Israel? Yeah, God looked far and wide in the times before Jesus was born, and he couldn't find no virgins. Really? Game changer that they kept themselves, that God could choose them and say, you're blessed and you're highly favored and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and a prophecy is gonna be fulfilled through you that's gonna last forever. What makes being a game changer so important? Because God says his kingdom will be established in the earth forever, but without you and I, forever may not happen. Um, oh man, <laughs> yeah. Wow, we've sure got God in a quandary, in a conundrum, don't we? It was a dark time in the history of the church. It was a dark time in the history of the world. In these 42 generations, there are four kings that are left out. There are many names that are listed, but there are four kings that are left out. You see, for a, a genealogy, again, in, in ancient times, these genealogies not only gave an individual his significance and his identity, 
Yeah, again, not everybody kept track of royal genealogies. You know what I mean? But it proved the royal lineage. Only if you were part of that family line. And that's why genealogies are so important. You know, they've got these like history trees or genealogy trees or whatever. And people pay all kind of money to find out where they came from. Can I just be honest with you? I don't want to know. Yeah, my family's done some of that genealogical research. And, you know, there's not a single drop of royal blood in my family (laughs) and like anywhere. Uh, Scoundrels? Yes. Royal? No. Yeah, you get the point. So what is this that we're listening to? Narcissistic nonsense and a denial that, you know, that the scriptures are about Jesus. Yet Jesus said the scriptures are about him. And when you make it about you, you kind of miss the whole point. And you have to twist the Bible and mangle it in order to stick yourself into it, which is exactly what Keith Craft was doing. Okay, moving along. No update music for this. I want to play this, and I'll make a couple of comments along the line. This past Sunday, uh, Heath Mooneyhan uh, issued a public apology after being arrested for a DUI. And we'll make some comments along the way, and we will also be praying for... Uh, Heath Mooneyhan, that uh, God grant him repentance and that during his uh, disciplinary time off that he would come to grips with the fact that um, he's demonstrated that not only is he not above reproach as far as character is concerned, but he does not meet the qualifications Scripture lays out for somebody to be a pastor as far as the fact that he has not studied and showed himself approved and he does not rightly handle God's Word. But here's Heath Mooneyham from this past Sunday, yesterday, um, and his public apology, and uh, as well as the disciplinary explanations from the elders as to what comes next for the bad boy preacher uh, from Joplin, Heath Mooneyhan. Here we go. <clears throat> On the evening of September 16th, 2014, at approximately 1030, While I was driving home after leaving a local bar, having consumed alcohol, I was pulled over by the Joplin Police Department and was administered a breathalyzer test in which I failed. I was then arrested and charged with driving while intoxicated or DWI. My actions and choices have led to a great deal of grief and disappointment for my family, Ignite, and the citizens of the Joplin area. And for that, I am truly sorry. As a result of my reckless and unacceptable behavior, I have not only disappointed countless people whom I deeply love and care for, but I've also found myself in a position of vulnerability and weakness when it comes to leadership. As the situation unfolded rapidly after my poor and stupid decision, the incredible leadership team of Ignite quickly assumed complete control of the organization and acted accordingly as stated in in our organization's bylaws. They have sought the wisdom and advice of the overseers of Ignite to combine with their wisdom and capable leadership abilities to reach an outcome to best set up Ignite and myself for long-term future health, excellence, and effectiveness. Myself, my family, and this church are blessed to have these men in such a time as this. I am fully committed to the process of health and restoration that they have laid out for mine and the church's future. They will be laying out that process for you in a few minutes. Beyond that, I'd like to take this opportunity to speak from my heart. There is zero doubt 
in anyone's mind that I have made an incredibly foolish, reckless mistake. I take full responsibility. Yeah, it's a little more than a mistake. Drunkenness is a sin. And that's one of the problems with this particular apology is that it doesn't recognize the biblical standard. And that is, is the biblical standard says that drunkenness is a sin. We continue. For that. Taking full responsibility is very different from just merely apologizing. I fully and completely understand the weight and totality that my actions have brought upon so many people that I dearly love. Yeah, I want to make something else clear. Since driving under the influences is illegal, okay, it's illegal to drive after having that many drinks with a blood alcohol level of that level, that also is a sin. And because, he, again, he's just said it's a mistake, he's saying he's taking full responsibility, but that requires him to confess his sin and call it what it is and say that he's in the wrong, he's, he repents, and he asks for God's forgiveness. This, what, that, the, my concern here is that there's very little of that going on in this, in this apology. Although he's saying he's taking full responsibility, I have to say, I, I object and say, no, you're not, because you're not recognizing that you, your behavior was a sin on two counts. Drunkenness is a sin, and because driving under the influence is illegal, again, it's, this is kind of compounding the sin here. It's not just this one event, though, but rather a lifestyle of rebellion and, unnes- and unnecessary reckless behavior that has continually put the very mission I passionately love in real jeopardy. A lifestyle of rebellion. And I would agree with him there. Yeah, that's, I, that's how I would describe Heath Mooneyhan. And I hate that. One of our substances here at Ignite is change. Change is one of the most difficult things that a person can go through. Not because it's physically painful, but it can often be emotionally painful as we examine the darkest, most secret areas of our life that we hide so well in order to maintain a source of comfort from from some very real pain. Whether that pain is insecurity, lack of identity, abuse, or any number of things, it is very real for so many, including myself. I found myself in a position where where I completely have convinced and reassured myself that I am okay. Because after all, I am the rough, tough, renegade preacher who gets part of his identity from being a rebel. And that's a problem. That's not what pastors are called to do, get their identity from being a rebel. Rebellion is, the Greek word for it is apostasy. Apostasia. How can a pastor, a pastor in Christ's church, have part of his identity as being a rebel? There's a lot more that's wrong here. And unfortunately, Heath Mooneyhan is not some kind of isolated pastor. He's part of a crop of these so-called pastors who basically identify as rebelling against the way the church has always been, all in the name of evangelism. And their identity is wrapped up in rebellion. That is a huge problem. This is simply not reality, though. Reality is me using alcohol to self-medicate. I use it sometimes to sleep, calm frayed nerves after a difficult day, and sometimes just simply to escape pain and reality. As a result, I've been leading from a place of very real weakness, hurt, and vulnerability. And the argument can be and has been made 
that I've often led well despite what may be circumstances surrounding my, rec- my reckless behavior. I would agree with that on the surface, but I must dig deeper than surface level. If that is considered leading well while actually operating from a weakened position, then the only logical conclusion is, is that there is a standard that must be raised in order to reach a, reach a truly scary and fully effective position of healthy leadership. In short, I'm making the changes necessary to become the leader that my wife, my children, this church, and community deserves. Those changes are not limited to the following, but include my commitment to remain fully submitted to the authority over me for the duration of this process to find health, healing, and strength. And I am making the commitment to 100% abstain from the personal consumption of alcohol. This decision is not based on a change in theological stance. Ignite has held and will continue to hold a stance of moderation and personal responsibility when it comes to alcohol, not one of abstinence. Being, but fully understanding the personal responsibility aspect of that statement, I'm making this decision from a position of leadership effectiveness and to gain and keep a position of strength, health, and wholeness in order to lead my family and this church for many years to come. I do not know how long Jesus will give me the privilege of making a difference in this world, but I'm committed to making the most out of that brief time. I love you all. And I do. And I look very forward to being a better pastor and leader to you, your families and your communities, if you'll continue to grant me that honor, I will see you very soon. I'm Chad Isaacs. Um... Steve Thomas, Josh Parsons, Chance Morgan, we're the leadership team here at Ignite, um, and we've drafted uh, a statement in response to what's happened this week, and I'm going to read that for you. It's been our honor to serve this church as your leadership team. The statement is in response to the disappointing events of September 16th, when Pastor Heath was arrested for driving while intoxicated. We are personally disappointed for Heath's family, Ignite Church, and all of those affected. As we've grown to know and love Pastor Heath, we have come to understand that he ministers from a place of brokenness and honesty. And while he's absolutely responsible for his reckless actions, his poor judgment, and its effect, our hope is to both discipline and restore him to fruitful ministry. We've met with Pastor Heath. We've also met with Pastor Scott Harness, and uh, Pastor Tyler Pageant, who serve as overseers for us at Ignite. And we feel like this embarrassing situation is a result of weakness, not wickedness. And we fully support Pastor Heath's commitment to completely abstain from alcohol. We have further decided that he should step away from direct leadership and his teaching role here at Ignite for a period of time for discipline and reflection. Knowing the magnitude of these changes, we've directed Pastor Heath to pursue one year of ongoing counseling focusing on alcohol abstinence. 
We would also like to add that based on the church's position that alcohol should only be consumed in moderation, we believe this was an error in judgment and not a moral failure. And I disagree with that. It was both, not either or. Drunkenness and an ongoing behavior that you're self-medicating on alcohol, yeah, that's not just a bad judgment. That is a moral failing as well. So, um, I mean, on the one hand, I'm glad that Heath is, uh, you know, he's apologized. I'm glad to hear that he's being held accountable. And I'm sure that, you know, a year off of ministry to cool his heels and think about all of this and get help are going to be beneficial. But the reality is this, is that Scripture makes it clear when it comes to the pastoral office, it's doctrine and life, character. Mm -hmm. Read the pastoral epistles. I would point you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on your life and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's not either or. And unfortunately, when, when you peruse the archives of Fighting for the Faith, you will find that Heath Mooneyhan, long before he this the sin of his got exposed, because you know he already talked about the fact that this was an ongoing pattern, before it came to light, there was already signs that showed that he doesn't rightly handle God's word, and he was not properly teaching uh, you know, sound doctrine. As a result of that, he was disqualified long before he was arrested uh, you know, for his DUI. He was disqualified from the pastor office long before that. And so it just troubles me that churches will put up with a pastor who's twisting God's word, but as soon as he has a moral failing, you know, sleeps with a secretary or gets arrested for a DUI, well, then they've got to spring into action. The reality is, is that these elders should have sprung into action years ago regarding Heath Mooneyham, years ago. And it's sad that these elders didn't even understand enough of sound biblical doctrine to know that their pastor was twisting God's word and not rightly teaching it. Very sad. In the meantime, another seeker-driven, angry, rebellious pastor type has, um, you know, been has bit the dust, at least you know, with Heath Mooneyhan, uh, it's temporarily. Pray for him. Pray for him and for his family. Pray that God opens his eyes, not only to his sin and rebellion as far as his moral character is concerned, but his sin and rebellion against sound doctrine and his job and responsibility as a pastor, and that God would open his eyes and bring him to repentance so that he does not go back into the pastoral office until he's actually studied and showed himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, but who can rightly handle the word of truth. Okay, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Another example of narcissistic eisegesis. You know, the assumptions are all wrong and that's what's causing the problem. Stay tuned. We'll, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. to a Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Life Point Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Daniel Floyd presiding. The name of the sermon is Dark Horse Stacked for Success. And what you will notice about this sermon, the assumptions are the problem. Again, the assumption is uh, God's got some dream destiny purpose for you to go and change the world. And so you read the Bible to look at how these guys who had dream destiny purposes, how they changed the world. And you look for patterns in their life that correspond to patterns in your life so that you can go, oh, that's what's going on in my life. And when you do that, you don't know what God's word is actually saying because God's word was not written to do that. Yeah, so let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Daniel Floyd and his sermon entitled Dark Horse Stacked for Success. 
Here we go. I want to welcome all of our campuses, Spotsy, Fredericksburg, Stafford, everyone joining us online. We're glad that you're here today. And uh, if you have a Bible, 1 Samuel 16, if you don't, it'll be up on the screens for you. Don't worry about that. Now, listen carefully. If you were paying attention to the sermons we reviewed last week, we had a different pastor review 1 Samuel 16. And you'll notice when you make the Bible about you, there's no consistency as to what the Bible means. Uh, Daniel Floyd's interpretation of uh, 1 Samuel 16 is going to be different than what we heard last week. Um, But if you have one and you want to turn there, you can. I'd encourage you to take some notes today. I think this will be a helpful message to you. And I believe that uh, God's going to say something to our hearts and to our lives that will help us. And I wonder if anyone in the house has ever faced a season in life where you felt like you were in the in-between. Um, in the in-between. What I mean by that is you... In the in-between? Find yourself not where you want to be, but not necessarily where you were. You're kind of in the in-between. You're in the messy middle. Um, you haven't yet reached the destination of, of what you dream and hope for, um, but you're definitely not where you started. You're in the... In between, let me let me describe it this way. Uh, this summer, my wife Tammy and our two kids and my mother-in-law, um, they went. Notice I said they, not we. They took a, a road trip to Branson, Missouri, which is two days there and two days back. It, I didn't go because it it broke my six-hour limit rule. If if I have to be on the road over six hours, I look for flights. If no flights are available, I don't care if you're family. I'll see you next time. We can FaceTime, and it's like I'm there. Um, anybody else in the house, you got kind of a driving limit? Okay, good. I'm not the only one. I just want to make sure I'm not the only one. And so my wife, you know, went and uh, decided to make this trip, and um, she such a positive attitude and, and leading up to the trip, you know, the months leading up to the trip. I, the encouraging husband, was painting these horror pictures of how our children would respond, who I love. I just don't like to be in the car with them for long hours. But I painted these pictures. She's like, no, it's going to be great. We're going to stop halfway. We already have a hotel, you know, with a pool. And then we'll stop and swim. And then we'll do the next day. And I was like, all right, more power to you. Um, I'll be at home riding my motorcycle for long hours on end um, while you guys are in Branson. And so they went because I didn't want to go into purgatory for two days on the road. And so they went and everything was great. And then they came back. And uh, the, the time with family was great. The origination point. And coming home would be even better because they'd gone, been away a week and a half. But it was in the in-between that wasn't so great. I think they were about two hours away and I get a call from Tammy. And I thought, my kids may not make it back alive. <laughs> because you have to understand something about my children, who I love. Let me reiterate, I love both of them in doses. And... <laughs> their parents are like, I can't believe that. Don't act so spiritual in church. <laughs> you know, there are some times you just want to ship them to grandma's. Can I get an amen? amen. And there's sometimes the kids are like, please ship me to grandma's. <laughs> right? I mean, let's just be real about it. It's the way it is. Um, and so you have to understand something about my kids. We can be going up to like Woodbridge in our areas, a, a shopping area, and we can be driving there. It's like 35 minutes. And 15 minutes in, my kids are going, how long is it? How much farther is it? You know, this is taking so long. You know, we were at uh, King's Dominion not too long ago. And uh, Owen, my oldest, uh, who's seven, um, wanted to do the antique cars and wanted to drive. So I sat in the back seat and the entire 
um, ride, I sat in the back going, how much longer, Owen? Can you hand me some goldfish? Do you have anything to drink? I don't want to watch this DVD. Do you have a different DVD? The entire time I just did that. And his response was, dad, stop. (laughs) And so we get in the car the other day. And as soon as we pulled out of the driveway, he goes, dad, you got any goldfish? Dad, I don't want to see this DVD. And then he just started laughing. But the origination point, Branson wasn't bad. Getting home was even better, but in the in-between wasn't always so fun. And I wonder if you've ever found yourself in life in the in-between. Uh, you, you, you. So have you found yourself in life in the in-between? Now, this is where the presupposition is false. The, does the Bible have patterns that we can look for during those times when we find ourselves in the quote-unquote in-between? You know, in between when you've received from God the vision for your purpose and destiny to change the world, and the in between when you're not quite in the position to live out your purpose and destiny to change the world. You know, the in between. Yeah, see, that's not what the Bible's about. You have an idea of what life could be like in the marriage, and you're not quite there to the place that you see, but you're definitely not where you were. Um, You have an idea of what financial stability looks like, and you're not where you were, but you're definitely not to that place yet. Um, You're dating, but you're not yet engaged. You're you're engaged, but you're not yet married. You're you're in the in-between. I wonder if anybody in the house has ever found themselves in the place of the in-between. Because this is where David finds himself. And David is the guy we've been... So David finds himself in the in-between, huh? looking at through this series and David is the David of David and Goliath and spoiler alert, he kills Goliath and chops off his head. Um, he is the, the ultimate dark horse. He is the one that what seemed like a disadvantage in his life actually became the advantage in his life. And so um, David finds himself today in the in-between. And, and so we're going to look at this and I want to preach a message to you today called stacked for success, stacked for success. I believe that every one of us in the room, God has been stacking your life for success. And I- really, you believe that. Why should you believe that God has been stacking everyone's life who attends your seeker-driven church for success? What makes you think that? What biblical passage says God has stacked the lives of everybody who's a Christian or in your church for success? You can't just make something up and then pin it on God. If this is biblical doctrine, then we would see this in the scriptures for as something that pastors are to proclaim. I don't see any passages that tell us all Christians are being stacked by God for success. And I want to show you that today. First Samuel 16, we're going to start in verse 13. If you're with me, everybody say amen. Verse 13, and here's a quick review. Um, Saul is the current king of Israel. He's the very first king of Israel. God never wanted them to have a king because he wanted to be their king. But they begged and pleaded for one, and they wanted to be like all the other nations of the world. And so God allowed them to have a king. How many of you know that um, if you push against the will of God long enough, sometimes God will let you have what you want, and then you find out what you want. It isn't really what you wanted at all. Have you ever been there? Somebody say amen if you have. And so Samuel, it says in verse 13, so Samuel, he's the prophet of God who had the power and the authority and responsibility from God to anoint the next king. Samuel took the horn of oil 
and anointed him, being David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, and Samuel then went to Ramah. That's where we left off last week. I want to point out here that just because you have greater anointing doesn't mean you immediately get a greater assignment. Um, where does 1 Samuel 16 say, Therefore, because David was anointed as the king of Israel, ergo, that means everybody who's a Christian is going to receive an anointing from God, just like David. It doesn't say that. See, it's the assumption, it's the presupposition that the Bible is a collection of stories where people, just like me, who've received purposes from God, you know, the, the burps and hiccups and challenges they had in getting to the point where they can fulfill their dream destiny. That's not what the Bible's about. And if you, if you approach Scripture with this assumption, you're going to misread it every single time. Just because you have a greater anointing doesn't mean you immediately get a greater assignment. Anointing simply means the, uh, the special calling of God and the power of God that comes with that to do a special responsibility. And so, Dave, uh, where did you get that purpose-driven definition of anointing? I've never heard that definition or read it. The Hebrew word Mashiach and the, uh, the uh, Greek word Christos, I've never heard or read in any Greek or Hebrew uh, lectionary that uh, not lectionary lexicon that uh, that that's what that word means. You just made that up and pinned it on the word anointing. David has a greater anointing now, but he doesn't immediately get a greater assignment. He goes to watch the sheep. He goes back to the, watch the sheep. He's about 30. he has an anointing. He's the anointed king of Israel, but not yet reigning king of Israel. Thirteen years old, most scholars believe. And he's been anointed to be the next king, but he doesn't immediately move into the palace. If, if you and I were in the text and we're David, we would probably ask Samuel, all right, who's coming to get me to move me into the palace? When do I get to set up on my throne? When do I get to have my um, head measured for the crown? Um, because most of us want the position, but we don't want the preparation. Come on, somebody. We want to get moved up to the front of the line. Um, but we don't want to do the work it takes to get to the front of the line. Many of us, um, we have enough drive and talent, but sometimes our drive and talent uh, can write a check that our character can't yet cash. And so God takes us through a season of preparation. David, Yeah, again, this is not about us. Where did you come up with this idea that this text is a, somehow revealing a pattern that somehow is going to play out in your life? It doesn't. David was watching sheep. He was 13 years old and he was watching sheep. But we find out uh, later on in the text today that through this years of watching sheep, he had grown up. He had become a warrior. He had become an intelligent man. And uh, he had become a great heart player. Some they say heart player. That's what we're going to talk about today. How to be a great heart player. I should have, if you want a subtitle for this message, Stacks for Success, subtitle, How to Be a Great Heart Player. That'll make sense in a minute. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? But I wonder if during the season that David... Yeah, that would be me. I don't know what you're talking... I don't know how you're getting this from the text. 
David found himself um, watching sheep from 13 years old till now. I wonder if he'd ever asked this question, God, how long? I wonder if anybody in the house has ever asked that question. You wonder how, if he ever, well, where in the Bible does it say David was going, how long, Lord, I'm the anointed king of Israel, but you know, I'm tending sheep, how long? Which text says that David lamented and thought about it that way? I can't think of any. Why are you putting things in the text that are not there? Your job is to exegete, read out what's in the text, not read something into the text that isn't there. We continue. God, how long? I wonder if David said, God, how long is it going to be until you finally come through on this thing of me being king? How long am I going to have to wait? How long am I going to have to take care of these stinky sheep? And let's just be practical about it. Clean up after these stinky sheep. Talking about poo. (laughs) Some of you looked at me like you were confused. Just helping you out. How long are we going to have to watch after these smelly sheep? How long am I going to have to deal with this? I wonder if David ever asked the question of how long. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in that place where you're asking God. I wonder. I wonder. That's no way of doing biblical exegesis. How, how long, God, how long before this relationship turns itself around and becomes the thing that, that I kind of envisioned it could be? God, I wonder how long before I get that financial breakthrough that I've been needing, God. How long, how long have I, am I going to have to continue to deal with this boss and this job on this career until it becomes everything that I wanted it to be? God, how long? Has anybody ever in the house asked God how long? Before we make some traction on this thing. And so, you guys are a little slow on the uptake today. And so verse 14 of chapter 16 um, is where we get into the next part of the story. And the Bible says this. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. Someone say, play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well. Somebody say, well. Notice that Saul didn't say, Find someone who's a beginner harp player. He said, get me someone in here that can throw down on the harp. It's my interpretation of the translation. And bring him to me. Verse 18. One of his servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to throw down on the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. Just to insert here, those are not two things that I would put together. A great harp player and a warrior. (laughs) He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Thirteen years old, in verse 13, anointed to be king. Between verse 13 and verse 14, we have many years. We don't know how many years, but enough years for him to become known as a great heart player, a great warrior, a well-spoken or an intellectual individual, and a good-looking individual who people recognize that the Lord was with them. And so Saul, in verse 14, you're asking the obvious question. You should be if you're thinking today. Um, an evil spirit from God came to torment Saul. That's a difficult theological thing to wrestle with, right? That God would send... You mean God sent an evil spirit to him? And I really want to deal with that. Permitted 
that in depth this morning. And so what I want to encourage you to do is at the end of the service, grab your campus pastor. They'd be happy to describe to you the theological nuances of how an evil spirit could come from God. So moving on. I'm kidding. I won't do that to them. The Hebrew is what the Hebrew language is what this text was originally written in. And most scholars believe that a better translation of the Hebrew is that God allowed an evil spirit to torment Saul. Now, how could God allow an evil spirit to torment Saul is the question then that we have to deal with briefly. Because I don't want to spend all of our time here, but I do not want to skip over something just because it's difficult to understand. Are you with me? And so how could God allow that? Well, if you read the life of Saul, you find out that Saul had become prideful, which anything that is not of God is evil. Somebody say evil. And so when anything is not of God, it's evil. Most of us, when we think evil, though, we go straight to like Halloween. Are y'all with me? We go straight to like spooky, scary, weird, gory, you know, head spinning around, eyes flipping back. That's that's what we think of evil. But when we get it in the context of, of a biblical understanding, anything of not of God is evil. Pride is therefore evil. Are you with me? Paul Saul had become a prideful individual and an unpredictable individual. That's why God had to remove his spirit from him. We couldn't have an unpredictable king leading a nation. Um, no, it's not that he was unpredictable. It's that he didn't have faith and he was disobedient. Saul had, if you go on to read his life, he becomes a little bit paranoid in his life. He begins to consult psychics. Which is the result of the ever-encroaching, growing appetite of sin and its consequences. Instead of consulting God about the future. And so when you begin to open your life up to things that are evil, most of the time the enemy of our soul doesn't have to um, throw things in our life that will derail us. He has to simply allow us to continue to go on the trajectory that our own choices have set us on. How many of you know that sometimes it's not God sent something or the devil did something. It's that you made a choice and now you're reaping the consequences of your choice because you reap what you sow. This is pretty preaching. I know you're not going to amen me today. It's all right. I know you ain't going to applaud for stuff today, but I'm going to give you something that's going to change your life and set you free if you'll kid it today. And so Saul finds himself on the trajectory that his decisions have set him on because he refuses to own up to his own choices and he refuses to turn back to God. That's refuses to repent. And yeah, this is, this is a fine way of understanding the effects of sin and rebellion against the law of God. Yeah. So what we're hearing from our pastor here, Daniel Floyd here, this is law, but we also need to hear gospel. You have to put the two together and preach them properly. So he, he's preaching the law in a way that's showing the consequences of sin. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would say this is a good thing in this sermon, but unfortunately it gets obliterated by the not so good things and the bad things in the sermon. We continue. And so now Saul finds himself in this place where he is tormented by things. When you carry stuff around that you were never meant to carry around, it will feel like you are being tormented. Because it is a heavy weight to carry stuff around you were never meant to carry around. It is a heavy mental burden to carry things around you were never meant to carry around. What things are we carrying around? And so his attendants say, hey, Saul, why don't you um, get a heart player in here? Because that's what everybody needs is a good heart player. (laughs) Why don't you get a good heart player in here? And why don't you let them play whenever you're being tormented? 
And so he says, well, don't get any heart player in here. Get someone who plays what? Well, good. Get someone who can play well. Get someone that's skilled. Don't bring me no beginner harp player. Don't bring me somebody in here that just got new strings on their harp and they're trying to figure it out because their mama wants them to be a good harp player when they grow up. Get me someone in here who knows how to play, that can like throw down, that can do like devil went down to Georgia on their harp. Are y'all with me? But give me somebody that knows how to play the harp. Don't bring somebody up in here that don't know how to play because when this thing comes on, I want someone that can soothe my soul. With a little bit of rocking. Okay, just checking. <laughs> Get someone that can play well. And so one of the servants goes, I've heard of somebody, a guy named David. And this guy, David, is Jesse's son. Now, Saul, remember, Saul doesn't know that, that David's been anointed king. And, and he doesn't know all that's what happened behind the scenes. But David must have been a really good heart player because your name to get mentioned in the inner courts of the king, you better be able to really throw down on the harp. And so he must have been amazing on the harp. And so he said, I heard David can play and David's really good. So why don't you bring David in here? And so he says, well, go get him and tell Jesse to bring him in here. Now, I want to point out something to you today is this. The text does not say that David prayed well. It said he played Well, are y'all with me this morning? Matter of fact, the text, the last thing that they mention is that the Lord is with him. The first thing they mention is he can play the harp well. Here's what I want you to get today is that when you are living in the in-between, between where you used to be and where you want to be, between what you saw the vision for your life and before you've realized the Yeah, again, there's that false assumption. Where in the Bible does it say I'm supposed to have some vision or dream for my life and then I'm going to go into the in-between time? Yeah, this is reading myself into this biblical text. You made the point of saying it doesn't say that David prayed well, but that he played well. So you're trying to pay attention to the text, but the text doesn't say anything about me in here getting a vision or anointing from God. The vision for your life when you're living in the in-between is the time where you learn to develop your gift. It's the season where you have to learn to develop your gift. David was 13 when he was anointed. And while he was washing sheep, he became a skilled harp player. He learned to play the harp really good. He must have sat under the tree when the sheep were eating and he'd be like playing that harp. And when, and when the sheep were sleeping, he'd pull out his harp and, and practice a little bit more. So he could become skilled at, a, at what it was he was trying to accomplish. And that was to become a great harp player. Somebody say harp player. When you are in the in-between is the time when you should develop the gift that God has given you. <laughs> How are you getting this from this text? except for reading yourself into a text where you're not. You're not in this text. This text isn't about you. God doesn't promise some dream destiny and then an in-between time from the time you're anointed for your destiny and the time that it comes to pass. This You are not King David. you got to work the gift God has given you. Listen to me. God will give you the raw material, but you got to work with the raw material. 
And it just doesn't mean a talent or something that everyone sees on a stage. It's not, I'm not talking about, I hope you understand and can, can cross over and apply this into your situation. Your gift may be encouragement and your gift may be music and your gift may be something else. We all have different gifts that God has given us the raw material for. I don't know what yours is, but I do know that when you're in the in-between is the time where you develop the gift because they didn't need someone that was just learning to play the harp. They needed someone that could play the harp well, someone that was skilled at playing the harp. And when you're in the in-between is the time where you develop the gift God has given you. And this is total nonsense, narcissistic nonsense. You develop the gift. But thank you for your encouragement. But, but what, what bothers me What bothers me is that sometimes we expect God just to plop opportunity in our lap. We expect God to take us out of obscurity into notoriety in some form or fashion because we prayed a lot. Don't get me wrong. I'm about to mess with some of y'all. If you're really religious, you're going to get messed with today. I'm sorry. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray. You should. The Bible says that we should pray always. All right, are y'all with me? This should be the state of our heart is communication with God. But it didn't say he prayed well, it said he played well. And so some of you think, well, I should be able to get the opportunity and move from obscurity to notoriety because I pray a lot. Or I read my Bible. Notice the assumption. I should get the, the privilege of moving from obscurity to notoriety because that's the assumption. So he's saying, Oh no, it's not because you pray. Well, you got to do something right so that you can go from obscurity to notoriety. Where in the Bible does it say that we're all going to go from obscurity to notoriety? Where is that promise for all Christians? It doesn't exist. Bible a lot. And you should do that. But David didn't go from notoriety or obscurity to notoriety because of his spiritual disciplines. He moved there because of his skill. Cause he played well, are y'all with me this morning? Uh, the worst thing, I hate it. Oh, this drives me crazy. I could preach all day long on this one little point right here. Is when people of faith somehow think that their faith is an excuse to not be excellent in their craft. Are you with me? No, I don't know anybody who thinks that way. One thing that drives me crazy and almost wants me to say, don't name the name of Christ, is when people on the job, I'm about to get into your business a little bit, is that okay? When people on the job know that you're a follower of Christ and know that you produce the least out of everybody on the job. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Whenever you work, work as unto the Lord. That means that what you produce on the job should be better than what anybody else has produced on the job. Because you ain't doing it for the boss. You're doing it for the boss. Yeah, and there's a passage that talks about doing our work as unto the Lord. That's the passage you would go to for this doctrine passage you're preaching from kind of supports the idea, but again, the presupposition that somehow we're all supposed to go from obscurity to notoriety, yeah, that ain't in the Bible, though. But some of us, we we allow faith to be our excuse for laziness. 
I'm preaching now. We allow faith to be our excuse for laziness. Well, I got a good heart. I'm glad you got a good heart. Go get to work. Yeah, actually, you should challenge the presupposition. No, you don't have a good heart. Jesus says out of the heart comes all kind of sin and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Challenge that statement. Are y'all with me? Some reason we think our, our good heart, our good heart is an excuse for, for not using the raw talent that God's given us and developing it to the greatest level we possibly can. I'm not saying be like that person or do like that person. I'm saying take the raw talent God's given you, the gift God's placed on the inside of you, and develop that gift for the glory of God to the greatest level you can develop that gift so God can work in and through you for His glory and for the good of everybody else around you. When you're in between, the in-between is a gift because it gives you the opportunity to develop your gift. Yeah, again, where in the Scripture is this doctrine of the in-between laid out clearly for us to believe And can you show me where the church fathers taught this doctrine as well, so that I know that it's truly sound biblical doctrine and orthodoxy? When nobody's looking. So that you're ready when everybody's looking. But you can't start developing your gift when the opportunity arises. When David got the text, King Saul wants you. It wasn't time to go to the music store. And buy a harp. Are y'all with me? Let, let me bring this down into real world for you a little bit. When the job opportunity opens up, is not the time to start acquiring the skill for that job that you want that is now open. That job will pass you by if you didn't do the development between where you wanted to be and when the opportunity came before you. Are you with me this morning? Yeah, that's just common sense. Whenever, whenever you meet the one that you think could be the one, that ain't the time to get your financial house in order and deal with some character flaws in your life. You ain't going to get her if in the in-between you haven't been developing something on the inside of you and working the gift God has given you so you're ready for when the opportunity is presented to you. You got to work your gift. Touch somebody and say, work your gift you got to work your gift. You don't wait till the king calls to learn to play the harp. you got to start working it now. you got to work with what you got. Sometimes people are, are surprised. Um, I was just having this conversation earlier. People, people are surprised sometimes whenever um, they hear that, that we help people find the place to serve And don't get this wrong, this message ain't about serving. You can apply it that way, but it's not the thrust of it. Our surprise whenever we, they find out that when people serve here, if we feel like they're not serving in a place that maximizes their gift and they're not gifted to, we don't leave them there. We sit down and have the conversation and say, hey, this may not be the best place for you. I know you want to greet, but you don't ever smile. (laughs) Are you with me? I know you... I know that, that you want to you know, be on the worship team, but you're vocally challenged. I know your mama told you you could sing, but your mama lied. Are you with me today? 
But here's what happens in a lot of, I'm just, I'm just going to lay it out today. Is that all right? Here's what happens in most churches. Well, they got a good heart. I know they got a good heart, but I couldn't see their heart because my ears were hurting from their voice. I'll leave that one alone right there. I'll just let that lay right there. People are going to start leaving the church. See, the in-between allows you to develop your gift before the demand is placed on your gift. What I mean by the demand placed on your gift is the demand was placed on David's gift when King Saul called him. And there was a demand for that gift to now come front and center and be used. And there'll come a day in your life when there is a demand placed on your gift, whatever it is. I don't know when it is. I don't know how it'll come. But there will come a day when the demand is placed on your gift to come front and center. And that is the wrong time. And it's too late at that moment to develop the gift. you got to develop it in the in-between. you got to be active while you're waiting. you got to be active while you're waiting. I remember whenever I was um, first starting out in ministry. And, and this will apply differently to you because not everybody's called to be in ministry the way that I'm called to be in it. Everybody's called to be in ministry, just not the way that I'm called to be in it. But I remember when I first... Yeah, the way you're called to be in it is to rightly handle God's Word and teach sound doctrine, which is not what we're getting in this sermon. I started out in ministry. Um, I, would, I would go to this youth group, and they would let me set up chairs. Not teach. Not preach. Not even lead a Bible study. Not even lead one kid in a Bible study. <laughs> set up chairs. I could have gone in and said, no, 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 you don't understand. My gift is teaching. But what God was trying to show me is, no, the gift he wanted to develop in me was faithfulness. Would I set up chairs, which nobody saw, for a long time before I ever stood on a platform where a lot of people could see? Was I willing to be faithful? A lot of people, they don't want the preparation because the preparation is in obscurity. They want the notoriety. We want to be up in front. We want people to see our gift. We want people to pat us on the back. We want people to send a Facebook message saying, what you did, they bless my heart so much. <laughs> we want to get likes. We live for the likes. Don't we? Live for the likes. How many likes did that post get? How many likes did that tweet get? We live for the likes. So we don't want to develop our gift in obscurity while no one's looking. Again, this really doesn't have anything to do with the story of King David from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Because there's no likes to that. And I remember I set up chairs for forever. And then finally I, I, got, I moved up to getting to lead a Bible study with a few kids. If I remember right, it was middle school boys. Because it's hard to find people to do Bible study with middle school boys. You've got to be able to deal with the aroma. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not hating on middle school boys. I think they're awesome. And then I remember on my commute from college back and forth that I would, I would take a passage that God had been speaking to my heart about and in the car with no one else in the car with me but just me, I would preach that text. I would yeah, um, what does this have to do with 1 Samuel 16 again? Preach that text. I would be driving down the road and, and I'd be like, you know, I'd, I'd be like, David, 
was out in the sheep, watching the sheep, and no one was around. And, and he, God hadn't forgotten about him. God was hiding him. And so he was hidden, but he wasn't forgotten. And I, w- I would preach myself happy all by myself. I could have had a bad day, and I would just preach myself happy all by myself. Some of you are looking at me like, you have lost your mind. I did that a long time ago. But I would, that is, lose my mind. It was gone. I would preach myself, and I would preach in that car when no one was around. Because you know what the deal is? Is that I could preach and make a whole lot of mistakes in my little Honda CRX when no one was around. And it was so full that all I could do was barely reach the gear stiff because I hadn't done laundry all semester because I was going to see my mom. And my mom would do all my laundry for me and be happy to do my laundry for me. And I'd be driving down the road preaching myself silly. And I would, I would preach just like I preach now. I, I didn't start this yesterday. Are y'all following me? I started this like... 20 years ago when no one was in the car and no one was looking and no one was coming. Yeah, you're just like King David, you know, and you want everyone else to be just like King David too. But the way we should be like David is have the same faith that David had. Yeah, the one who trusted in his Savior for the forgiveness of his sins, even the sin of adultery and, and well, murder. Yeah. But God knew, God knew there'd be a day where a demand would be placed on my gift. Whenever that gift would need to come up up front and center. And if he could uh, trust me to set up some chairs in a fire hall. And if he could trust me to lead a Bible study. And if he trusts me to so be in love with the word of God. And want to explain the word of God in a car where no one was around. Then just maybe, maybe he could trust me to unpack the word of God to thousands of people every weekend. But if in the in-between from, from, from where I was to what I saw, because I saw all you before you ever came. I saw this room and all these campuses before. I saw myself standing preaching to thousands of people. With- who's he preaching about now? Himself. Yeah, that's who he's preaching about. When it was just me in my CRX driving down the road between here. Are y'all with me this morning trying to shift gears because there wasn't? I saw all this. <laughs> So, what do you have to do with this text? This text isn't about you. But if in the in-between I hadn't developed the gift, then the opportunity would have come and passed me by because I wouldn't have been ready. So in the in-between, you develop your gift. But here's the deal. Most of us, we don't get to the place of playing the harp before King Saul because we quit. I never started playing the harp. Yeah, no. And, you know, I, I tried my hand at, you know, guitar, and I, I never really was that good at it, you know? Because we quit. You know, you can quit things without walking out on them, right? There's, there's two ways to quit. You can quit a marriage by leaving it and signing some papers. But you can also quit a marriage and still live in the same house every single day. Because you've quit. You can quit a job by turning in your two-week notice, or you can quit a job by showing up every day and not bringing your best to it. Either way, you've quit. And most of us, we never get to the place of developing our gift to the place that God wants to take us. Therefore, being able to step into the opportunities God wants us to step into because we quit too early. So is that a sin? You know, it might be. I mean, don't you think, though, that if you're going to be berating people for not bringing their A game, for not doing their work as unto the Lord, that you better call them to repent and then tell them about the crucified and risen Savior 
who bled and died in their place for that sin. Sin, maybe a sin of apathy. Um, you know, sin. Yeah, you, you see what I'm talking about here? Because we have we have a we have a, a pandemic in this generation, and I'm not talking about a younger generation necessarily. I'm just talking about all of us that don't know how to stick with some things when it gets hard. We don't know how to stick with stuff. We don't know how to stick with stuff whenever it doesn't feel good anymore. And then we start blaming God for our emotional whims. Well, God told me to do this. Then next week, God told me to do that. And then the next week, stop blaming God for your emotional whims. That's what I would say to every single vision casting leader in the seeker driven and purpose driven movement. <laughs> Just saying. Somebody told me this one time, a pastor friend said, you know, most people will quit a church, and I think it applies to everything, over the 20%. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, they love 80% of what's going on, but they'll quit over the 20%. Right? I mean, I've had people, believe it or not, I mean, I don't know how smart they are, but we've had people leave our church. From what I'm hearing on how this this sermon is going and you're mishandling a God's word, probably a wise decision on their part. I think it's a dumb move. Really dumb. But it'll be it'll go down like this. Man, I love what God's doing at LifePoint. All the lives that are changed, all the money that's given away to the community, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I love that we're building orphanages around the world and planting churches around the world. And man, my kids, they just come home and and they're pumped because of our kids point teams that are amazing people. They just know the word of God and they're pumped about that. But we're just leaving. I'm like, why? Well, the music's too loud. (laughs) All right. Well, give a more substantive one. Well, like we're leaving because of narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as narcissism. You don't rightly handle God's word and you read yourself into a biblical text and you're teaching this idea that God has some kind of dream destiny purpose for us. Uh, That's not what God's word says. Therefore, we're leaving because of false doctrine and Bible twisting. I think that would be a good reason. I'm like, really? (laughs) Really? Are you kidding me? I know know I'm preaching to the choir because y'all are here. But I'm like, really? If you find anything in life that's 100%, then leave it because you'll mess it up. You're not going to find a relationship. Come on, somebody. You're not going to find a relationship that you love 100% about it. You're not going to find a job that you love 100% about it. You can own the business. I got best friends that are business owners. They own it. They start it. They don't love all of it. Are y'all with me? You're not going to find anything that you love 100%. And a lot of us, we quit over the 20%. Well, I love what God's doing at that church. I just love how lives are being changed. And I love how I love, I love, I love. But there was a greeter that didn't smile at me the other day. (laughs) Which first is a lie because our greeters are awesome. (laughs) The usher told me I needed to watch the sermon in the lobby after the message had started. We're not coming back. 20%. We quit over the 20%, right? We quit over the 20% and miss out on everything that God has for us. Because we quit. We stop short. We come up short. What if David, around age, I don't know, 18, had decided, I'm tired of playing this harp. I don't want to get any better at the harp. 
Do you think when Saul said, I need a heart player that is skilled and knows how to play well, do you think one of his attendants would have said, well, I know this guy, David, and that guy, David, can really play a mean heart? That wouldn't have been the conversation. And then David would have never ended up in the presence of the king playing his heart for him, which opened so many other doors, which I'll show you in a minute. But if he'd have never learned to... Yeah, um, yeah. So God would have sent somebody else as a heart player. You know, there's so many things that are just not recorded for us in Scripture. You know, David didn't play the piano either. And maybe, you know, hi, we continue. Uh, play the harp. He wouldn't have had that door opened up if he'd have quit short. Don't let the 20% keep you from what God has for you. Don't stop short. Somebody say, don't stop short. Now look at this. I'm going to wrap up. Verse 20. Is this helping you today? No. Verse 20 says, So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. So David went from heart player to armor bearer. You know what? Whenever you're the type of person that will develop your gift when no one is looking so that you're ready when everyone is looking, when you're the person that can embrace obscurity until God puts you into notoriety, you will walk into environments and you will be the kind of... Yeah, again, this passage isn't about you going from obscurity to notoriety. Nowhere in the Bible are Christians promised from God to do that. And a person that is elevated and accelerated quickly. Notice he went from heart player to armor bearer. Heart player to armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, Allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. I also think it's pretty fascinating in the text that David, who has been anointed to be king, is now submitting his authority to the current king who God has rejected, but he's serving him based on his character, not based on Saul's character. Somebody, you need that word today. You're in a job situation right now where your boss has no character, but that does not dictate your character. You keep serving God and you bring your best every day. You're not serving that man. You're serving God. Verse 22, then, then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I'm pleased with him. And whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would play his harp, take his harp and play. And then relief would come to Saul. And he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. I find something really fascinating in the text and I want to close on this because I think it will help connect the dots. I find it very fascinating in the text, as I said earlier, that David is a heart player and a warrior. A heart player and a warrior. It almost seems like two divergent things in my mind. I mean, you typically... I don't think would be out on the field of battle in that time. Cue sappy music. That is a, an emotional manipulation technique to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience to help them make decisions here. In this particular case, it's to help you make a decision to uh, it, it start developing your skills and talents during the in-between times while you're waiting from in obscurity to go to notoriety. And then say, man, David... He kicked some butt today, but man, you got to hear him on the harp. <laughs> Anybody else find that an odd mix? But I think you find your calling at the crossroads of your uniqueness. That God's made all of us unique. Every one of us has a gift. Notice I didn't say a talent, I said a gift. 
God's put a gift in you. And it may be a unique gift. And so he's a heart player, but he's a warrior. He's got a skill that doesn't necessarily match up with this other side of him that he's a warrior. And David is a warrior, no doubt. I mean, David is a mighty man of battle. He's the greatest king that Israel ever had. Such a warrior that at the end of his life, he wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, David, you can't build it. There's too much blood on your hands from battles and from fighting so much. David was a warrior. But he's also a heart player. It's an interesting mix, right? I wonder if David ever thought this. God, here we go again. I wonder if. How do you exegete a passage by wondering if? This heart playing thing seems like a, a detour in my life. Why, why am I learning the heart? No text says that David thought that. Why are you making that a point in your sermon? I wonder if he ever thought, God, this being a shepherd thing and serving these sheep and caring for these sheep seems like a detour in my life. I don't understand why you've taken me around that way. I've been- Yet no text actually says that about David either. Why are you putting these words in his mouth? I've been anointed to be king. God, because watching these sheep, I've had to kill a lion and I've had to kill a bear. And that seems like, you know, that could have taken my life. That's kind of like putting your quarterback in during preseason and taking the chance of them getting injured. You just don't want to do that. You want to make sure they're healthy. I did not know that David, well, was an NFL fan. For the game, it seems like a bear and a lion having to deal with that because I'm watching sheep waiting for you to appoint me for what you've anointed me to do. It just seems like, you know, a waste of time. Like, why am I here? Why are these detours? Why are these seems like places that I'm going off the road and and not not going towards the... Yeah, notice this dialogue. It assumes that David understood that he's a purpose-driven guy and he's going from obscurity to notoriety, which is clearly always the path of Christians, you know. Destination that you have. Couldn't we just make a beeline towards being king? Why do we have to go through all these detours? And I started thinking about this and I wondered if anyone ever felt that way in your life. Like, like there's been some things in your life that seem like detours. God, I don't understand why you took me into this job and I acquired these skills because it doesn't really seem like it's going to get me to where you want to take me one day. God, I don't understand why I had to work for this person and learn to deal with that personality and, and learn how to how to thrive under that type of leadership because it just seems like a detour in my life. God, I don't understand why I went through that season with no job and I don't get what, why did, why God, why, why did you take me on a detour here? And why did you take me on a detour there? And and I just wonder if you've ever felt that way. And I begin to back up and look at the life of David because we're going to find out next week in chapter 17. You don't want to miss that. It's going to get good. We're about to get to Goliath and like sling and a sword. It's going to be awesome. We're going to fight some stuff and you're going to kill some giants in your life and it's going to set you free. But, but I, I begin to back up from the story and I start. Yeah, no, actually the story of David and Goliath isn't about me slaying giants. It's about Jesus. Started to connect the dots and see that God was stacking every experience David had to make him successful for what he had called him to. Because I started thinking about this. If he'd have never learned to play the harp, then he never would have been called on to play before King Saul. And if he'd have never played before King Saul, then in chapter 17, when he brings some food out to his brothers at the directive of his father, he wouldn't have had the boldness and the courage to go to King Saul and say, Saul, I'm going to go fight Goliath because I'm tired of him making fun of the armies of Israel. And if he'd 
have never went down and fought Goliath, then he never would have killed Goliath and cut off his head. If he'd have never killed Goliath, then he wouldn't have rose to national prominence and gained respect of all the people of Israel. If he'd have never rose to national prominence and gained respect of all the people of Israel, then he never would have had the respect to lead Israel the moment he stepped into office. And if he'd have never stepped into office, then he never would have become the greatest king that Israel ever knew, all because he learned to play his heart. Ridiculous. Narcissistic eyes to Jesus. Hi. Somebody in here today, God has given you a harp and you need to. Yeah, I, it wasn't me. I don't play no harp. To learn to play that. That detour wasn't a detour. It was God stacking you for success. That thing that seemed. Yeah, it's all about you, man. Seemed like a rabbit trail wasn't a rabbit trail. It was God stacking you for success. He wants you to learn to play your harp over here so you can play it before the king over there. Because he's going to take you from playing a harp to killing a giant to being the king of all of Israel. Somebody in the house. He's going to take me to be the king of all of Israel. Really? I thought that was Jesus. Wow. What a mess. House needs to not quit. Don't let the 20% stop you from everything God has for you. Don't allow the 20% to keep you short of the destiny that God has for your life. Do not quit. Somebody shout. Do not quit. Yeah, there you go. The next king of Israel is there at... Uh... <clears throat> Life Point Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. In, in the in-between time right now, clearly they're still in obscurity. Just a matter of time, though, when for them to become the next king of Israel. Wow. Like I said, as long as you assume that the Bible's about you, the Bible's a lockbook, you have no clue what it's about. This is just an example, another example of the epidemic of narcissism running through the church today. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and what he's done for you. And if you don't understand that, you do not understand the scripture. All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.